0: what we do in, on a daily basis to have success in our sport sets you up so well for what you're going to be doing in the real world but just the the pursuit of success in our sport does so much for success in the real world i feel like if you can train as hard as we do for a 10k say and then go out there and just squeeze every bit of yourself out of yourself for 25 laps and mentally stay engaged that whole way and talk yourself through all the tough points of the race I mean you can do anything like you know I I have like yard projects that are just daunting sometimes and I'm like oh I've got this you know and it's all because of my running background so I feel like you know just the what we do as runners um, goes a long way
1: hey what's up everybody i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast my guest this week is gary town who for my money is one of the most underrated and underappreciated collegiate coaches in the united states Gary has coached cross-country and track at Chico State since 1996, and his Wildcats have been one of the top NCAA Division II programs in the country for over 20 years. Last fall, Gary's men finished third at the national cross-country meet, while his women placed seventh. It was the 23rd top-ten team finish for the men and 18th top-ten placing for the women. In his nearly three decades at Chico State, Gary's teams have won dozens of conference titles, he's coached over 100 All-Americans, three individual national champions, and he has won numerous Coach of the Year awards himself. What he's most proud of, however, is his team's academic success and the fact that nearly 100% of his student-athletes have graduated from college. We covered some really good ground in this conversation, and I think you're going to take a lot away from it. Gary told me how he's kept his athletes excited and motivated after this year's cross-country season was canceled due to the pandemic. He also described the toll it's taken on him as a coach. Gary shared his thoughts on collegiate track programs getting cut around the country and what can be done to prevent more of them from getting axed moving forward. We also talked about creating support systems within his teams and developing and maintaining a strong culture, how his training philosophy has evolved over the years, whether or not he coaches the men and women differently. What success means for him as a coach, and a lot more. Before we get into this one, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been sampling a number of different New Balance shoes this year and highlighting them on various episodes of the podcast. But if I were going away for a couple months, oh how I wish that were the case, and could only take two pair with me, here's what I'd throw in my bag. The Fresh Foam 1080 V10, which is what I'd wear for about 70 to 80% of my miles, and the Fresh Foam Beacon V3 for faster workouts and up tempo long runs. I like having a well cushioned trainer like the 1080 to get me through most of the week, but there's something exhilarating about slipping on the Beacon, which is over two ounces lighter, when I want to run fast without sacrificing protection underfoot. You can check them both out today at newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes okay let's get right into this one with Gary town all right Gary town I have had my ass handed to me by a number of your runners over the years and it's been a while but it still stings I am very excited to welcome you to the morning shakeout podcast
0: uh, thank you it's it's great to be here Mario I'm a big fan of the podcast and of you and uh, it's great to talk to a fellow Division II alumna. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. For those listening to this who don't know, you are the
1: head cross country coach at Chico State here in California. You also coach the distance runners on the track team. We're having this conversation in late September. Typically, we would be like right at the beginning of racing season. Right now, but because of COVID 19 we are not, so I'd like to start by having you talk me through these past few months and just where you're at with everything right now, given that there's no season happening
0: wow it it's really been a challenge outside of anything I could have ever prepared for and um, in going into coaching, um, and I think you know pretty much no matter what you're doing professionally, um, you know I think we're all being affected pretty dramatically by um, the current status of uh, of um, you know the world situation with COVID, and for us, um, our biggest challenge has just been um, you know the sort of mourning the loss of a track season last spring, um, and, uh, and of um, a really promising um, cross country season this fall. We were returning um, on paper our top eight guys from from last year's NTA championship in which we took third. And, you know, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of hopes and a lot of expectations. And, and, um, and so those are all, you know, out the window. And so, um, it's just been a, a a big challenge. Um, It's been, um, a challenge in a number of ways, Um, you know, just sort of uh, dealing with that loss. Um, But then at the same time, trying to stay positive and focused on the future, even though we don't really know what the future looks like exactly and mm-hmm. when when that start date will be um, with competition. So, What does that look
1: like for you guys, the whole staying positive with so much uncertainty ahead uh, of us? Like what strategies have you employed with your athletes?
0: Uh, man, you know, um, one thing I've figured out is I'm not very good at this virtual thing. Um, I'm definitely a... Hands-on person, um, someone that uh, deals a lot better with uh, my student athletes when I can see them directly and work with them directly, and so um, so things look a lot different. Um, you know, we the last time I saw my athletes was in uh, March, mid March, um, and you know we're not allowed to uh, meet with them um, directly. Um, so uh, you know, um, in fact. You know, it's there are quite a few restrictions um, here in California, or at least within kind of the realm that I'm dealing with, um, in not being allowed to. You know, I have to be really careful with. Um, I, I can't tell them that they have to be running X amount of miles this week or doing whatever workouts. Um, uh, I can only sort of help guide them if they um, wish to be, and um, and um, so it's it's a real. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a a tricky spot to be in. Um, I've just tried my hardest to be encouraging, to remind them of the importance of not taking steps backward. Um, and if we're not, if we're not taking steps forward, really, then you are taking steps backward. So, um, it's been a challenge. Some of our athletes have, I feel like have handled it, um, as well as I could, I would hope, um, and others to be quite honest, uh, haven't. And I, I think we've, lost a few athletes, um, you know, for good from this, uh, um, from this experience. How do you mean by that, that you've lost some athletes for good? They've just
1: quit the team or their collegiate career is essentially over because they're going to be out of eligibility. I'd love to understand that a little bit better.
0: Yeah. I mean, it depends on the situation, um, or the, you know, the person, but, you know, I can tell you in, uh, the first week that um, it was announced our track season was canceled, I had a two time All American um, uh, who was a sophomore. Um, so he's a two time cross country All American with two more years of eligibility left um, that uh, you know, I met with um, the week after everything was shut down. And he told me that he was done. And, uh, you know, he was, had, quite a few things going on in his life that, um, that had him sort of on the fence a little bit. And this was, you know, sort of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, I guess you could say. Um, so yeah. Is it an NCAA rule that you can't
1: prescribe training for, for your athletes right now? I'm interested in how that ruling came down because under ordinary circumstances, you'd be in the middle of your season right now meeting, six times a week for practice, handing them schedules and whatnot. Like how, how did that come down once everything was canceled for the fall?
0: Yeah, I think it depends really, from my understanding, it seems that things depend a lot on um, what state you're in because every state has their own guidelines. And, uh, um, and then it, it's even broken down into what county you're in. And um, some of the counties in California, like ourselves right now, are in the, the lowest category as far as um you know we've got the worst numbers um per capita in our population which um which creates a bigger challenge with uh with the possibility of you know being able to um to do more with the student athletes directly. Um but I I know other coaches, you know, I mean if you look across the landscape of the NCA right now, you know, there are competitions going on in some mm-hmm. states, um, whereas in California there's no competition, um, and uh, and I think you know um, there are probably a lot of other a lot of other programs that are in a, the same situation that we are in California. So I think it's probably more regionally based as far as just how restrictive these uh, these measures are. Do you have any insight as to when things might open up? And for context, this
1: morning I read that Division One NCAA cross country is going to happen early next year, I believe in January, February, maybe uh, even March, I think it's like right around the same time as, as their indoor championships would happen. They're going to have this sort of truncated season that begins over the winter and may or may not intersect with indoors. Has anything like that come down for division two at this point?
0: No. Yeah. So, um, division, one thing our athletic director has made clear to us is that division one is on a different different landscape than we are um i think from my understanding division two cross country for 2020 or this school year is is not happening mm-hmm. um unless it's like a conference type um you know uh season but there will be no ncaa championship this school year for cross country in division two um but I, I believe you're right with division one um i think that they they announced uh, maybe early march like you said around the time that they typically would have the indoor championships so um, yeah and and I really don 't know um, you know what our timeline is going to look like. I think, uh, from everything i 've heard from our athletic director it's uh, it 's really kind of up in the air and probably dependent on just where the numbers are headed you know as we get further down the road here, um, statewide in and, and of course, like in our county
1: you 've been coaching for a
0: long time. this is very unprecedented in in
1: terms of things that you've had to deal with what's been the mental and emotional toll it's taken on you these past six months
0: man that's that's tough to define i you know um i've never i've never dealt with anything like this um and it's, it's so unique and i think it caught everybody off guard really and so it's it's been a real challenge um to be honest and i i i I think it's important for our coaches to be as positive and to, and to, um, you know, to try to keep our athletes in a positive place, which I really try my best to do, but we are human and, um, and it is, you know, it's, a uh, you know, there's just so much going on right now in the United States and COVID being one of them. Um, and so it's been difficult to, uh, to stay positive, positive. Um, and uh, to be honest, um, the thing that probably has kept my sanity in place is um, I haven't missed a day of uh, riding my bike since our last track meet. So, I'm, yes, or this morning was my 201st uh, day in a, a row of uh, of getting a good ride in, and um, oftentimes, you know, just you know, with same with running, uh, that's the time of the day where you can kind of uh, flush all that negative energy out and just kind of like get back to, you know, a good good place again. So I can totally relate to that. I had my own street going
1: where I'd run every day since the Olympic trials marathon when I returned home. And that was just snapped a week ago because the air quality here was so bad and I didn't have a way to safely get outside. But I totally understand. Just having that one thing that you do every day that just keeps you grounded and stable and helps you to work through everything else that you're dealing with.
0: Yeah, and for us, man, that um, you know, we're dealing with all the social things that are happening in the U.S. right now, and all the issues that we're that we're dealing with, and um, and then COVID, and then the fires, and so we're in our sixth week in a row right now of uh, smoke, you know, um, affected um, training and, um, you know, I, there's a part of me that is almost thankful that we're not in a season because I don't know what we would be, um, doing. I mean, we don't have access to treadmills because all the gyms are closed, including our campus. So, um, so, you know, if the AQI is above 150, which it has been, I would say in 50% of the days in the past six weeks, um, we're, uh, we'd be in an awful place. So it's just been, you know, insult to injury. How have you gotten out there
1: yourself when the AQI <laughs> has been that high?
0: Um, if you follow me on Strava, you could, you would see, um, I've put some pretty unique selfies up. Um, I resorted to, uh, riding with, uh, this, this big painter's mask that looks like uh Darth Vader.
1: Oh yeah. Um, I've
0: seen so I've, um, thankfully I can pull that off on the bike with everything. And I had uh, ski goggles um to keep the ash out of my eyes. Oh wow. Um, and so I've been uh just hammering away, like getting in some 40, 50 milers even um with uh with that stuff on. It's been an interesting uh uh mode of um resistance training. So when <laughs> I when I take all that off and I, I get a clear day, I just I feel like I'm flying out there. <laughs> I love it. I know that you've been riding a lot. Your background
1: is in running. I do want to dig into that as this conversation goes on. But since we're here and since you just (laughs) mentioned it, when did you shift your own personal interest more toward cycling than running? Or is it just the season that we're in right now? I'd love to learn a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So I pursued running um, pretty consistently from uh, high school until I was about 40, 41, 42, um, basically until I got to the point where, um, years of running with poor biomechanics and, um, and years of putting in, you know, hundred mile type weeks, um, and 30 something marathons. Um, you know, I just, I think my body, um, finally reached a point with running where, um, where I just was running into a lot of issues. I think it really, um, uh, the, the underlying problem was like, uh, glute issues, which I think is pretty common with, uh, aging mm-hmm. runners and posterior chain type stuff. And, and so, um, as I was, I was competing, uh, I ran the U S nationals a couple of times in cross country as a masters and had some good, some races I'm really proud of. Um, uh, but then, you know, I just kept getting in, injured and, and, uh, and kept, uh, when I'd be injured, I'd hop on the bike and, uh, so it just sort of went from like biking maybe a quarter of the year to all of a sudden like this, the injuries started taking over more, um, with running and, uh, and then the biking became more prominent. And then, um, now ironically, um, I've had a couple of really bad crashes on the bike. Um, most recently, uh, about two years ago, I was hit by a van head on and it just shattered my, my <sighs> pelvis. And, um, and that um, has pretty much put an end to any, any, uh, any running now. So now, ironically, I'm stuck on the bike because of a, a really bad bike crash. So, um, but it's good. Like, I'm, uh, I'm just, you know, really, honestly, I had a great um, experience. Uh, you know, I feel like I squeezed a lot out of myself in the sport of running, learned a lot um, that I, you know, that I use to this day with uh, guiding my athletes. Um, and cycling is just, a, you know, a nice pickup from that
1: is it a competitive outlet for you at all or is it just something that you do for pure enjoyment and to maintain fitness and push yourself on your own accord
0: man uh it's definitely both um i uh um you know when i was uh, in community college days um i did a bike ride one time with some guys that were pretty good cyclists and i didn't really have much of a background at all and i had a pretty hoopty bike and um, and we hit some pretty big climbs up uh, outside of Reading. And I was able to like leave these guys behind on the climbs. And so I figured out pretty quickly that um, even though I'm a 170 pound, 175 pound uh, athlete, I'm pretty good at climbing on the bike and uh, probably more. In fact, I'm cert- definitely more talented on the bike than I was as a runner. But so that kind of, um, um, so I knew in the back of my mind, that like, well, maybe once I'm done competing, running, uh, maybe I can kind of transition that to uh, to cycling. So just in the past uh, three years, I've um, gotten into some actual competitions and uh, I've really enjoyed that. And uh, and now um, with competitions out the window, I've just been destroying all my Strava <laughs> PRs. <laughs> so... <laughs>
1: As you've turned more of your own personal focus toward cycling and pushing yourself in different ways, have you learned anything from it or picked up on things that you can then turn around and apply to the athletes that you coach at Chico State?
0: Yeah, you know, this whole COVID thing has been really interesting because I've I've basically held myself to getting out the door every day and getting a good, honest ride in. And also I've held myself to like two um really good sessions a week, kind of as if I was, you know, competing and running. Mm -hmm. And uh and I've been trying to um get a good long ride in too. So it's really mirroring um you know that. And then I've I've um held myself to like um going after my PRs um in all these different climbs here locally. Um even though I'm fifty two right now, about to be fifty three. Um I've just like held my feet to the fire and saying like, hey, don't like, you know, don't um, don't let yourself out the hook. You're going to go do this climb this week, you know, and you're going to go for it. And, uh, um, what do you have to lose? And, um, so it's been fun, like just, uh, getting back to just the basics of testing myself and, and, uh, trying to beat my, my times and and PRs up different uh, climbs locally. Um, and, uh, so, and it's kind of, it's been interesting because I've been able to motivate, motivate myself in a pretty unique way that I've been trying to in my conversations with my athletes, I've been trying to use that with them. Like, Hey, like you don't need an actual race to get out and test yourself. You just need to have your mind in a good place Mm -hmm. Um, and just go out and like, no matter what, how you think it's going to go, just give it a chance and go and test yourself. And, uh, um, when I was 47 years old, um, I had this opportunity to run a mile on the track in, um, San Francisco and, uh, I, the mile, I didn't break five minutes in the mile until I was a junior in college. And, uh, and so, um, I've never been a good miler. And, uh, so at 47, I was like, I had done some pretty good running and I had like this last gasp of like some good mileage and stuff. And my, my friend was putting the meat on. He's like, Hey, Gary, like you should run this mile. And I kept like wanting to give myself an out and say like, nah, nah, like, you know, what's the what's the what's the difference if you do this or not but thank goodness I like said you know what like just give it a chance like so I put in about four weeks of like I'd already been running some good miles so I just yeah. put in four weeks of like some workouts and uh and I thought hey, I'd really love to break five minutes but I don't know if I have a chance at all and I went out there and I ran 459.97 um and I was so thankful that I gave it a chance, you know. Just so thankful that that I didn't like let myself off the hook. Um, And I've been trying to, you know, get that across my athletes. Like, hey, like uh, you know, get out and do some time trials. Like, test yourself, um, and you know, continue being used to hurting, and uh, um, that's going to help you in the big picture. I love hearing that because I
1: found myself in a similar place these past few months, and I'm only 38 years old. But I definitely am not as fast as I was, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. And I can start to see the slide a little bit. And most of my interest lies in helping my own athletes get better, not so much in my own. But as we were in the beginnings of this pandemic, and I was looking for ways to keep myself excited, motivated, and also be able to pass that on to my athletes because it was hard for them to push themselves in either solo time trials or whatever it would happen to be. For my 38th birthday, I was like, hey, let me see if I can break my high school PR from the mile, which was 20 years ago. And it's still you know 30 plus seconds off my all-time PR. I'm not going to touch that anytime soon. But it was like an appropriate challenge. And I did the same thing as you. I'd been running good mileage. I turned the dial for six weeks leading up to it. And I learned so much about myself from that. But I was also in the process, able to better relate to my athletes and what they were going through and being able to push myself for this fabricated goal that hmm. that, I ha- that I had set. And I, I felt like it put me in a really good place. And then I got away from it for a while, basically from my birthday was at the end of May for June, July, and August. And I found that I wasn't as effective of a coach. I couldn't empathize quite in the same way with my athletes. I had a hard time just getting motivated in other areas of my life. So I, I, I turned the dial again. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to do that this fall. I'm going to set up this little series of time trials essentially for myself to chase after and just push hard because one, it'll make me a, a, a better version of myself and a better coach. But I can also better relate to my athletes and Like literally let them know, hey, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. But if you do A, B, and C, you're gonna see yourself through this difficult time.
0: Definitely. Yeah, no, that's good. I like it.
1: Last bit sort of on the here and now of what you're dealing with in terms of your own team and cross country. We've seen a number of of D one programs cut track and field during COVID. And even at some smaller schools, we've seen some athletic teams quietly go away and maybe that's not necessarily going to be the case at Chico. I hope it's not the case at Chico, but for the sport and collegiate landscape as a whole, when you see that as a coach, does it worry you at all about what that means for the future of say track and field here in the US at the collegiate level?
0: <clears throat> yeah, um yes, definitely. I um It's interesting. I I just had, um, brunch at a a close friend of mine's house. He's a big supporter of our program and, uh, he's in his eighties. Um, he ran at university of Michigan back in, I believe the fifties. Um, and, uh, he, we were having a good discussion on the state of the sport and, and he expressed his concern about how, um, COVID is affecting programs and mentioned a track and field article, track and field news article, um, uh, that was, you know, that was talking about that. And I literally rode home. I, I rode out to visit him. He lives about 15 miles from my house. So I rode out there and mm-hmm. I rode home with that track and field news in my, in my pocket, uh, my Jersey. And I read the article after, and this was before the, um, William and Mary and before the Minnesota decisions were made. Um, and, uh, yeah, the article is pretty foretelling and it's, it is scary. And, uh, Um, you know, I'm, I think as much as anything, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the sport. Um, and, um, so I'm certainly not, you know, just happy that, that we're in a pretty good place or I feel like we're on stable ground. I, I am concerned with the future of our sport and other programs. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this is worrisome and the trend, especially, you know, the, those big programs, um, just, um, it's, it's, uh, they get so top heavy, I believe in some of the marquee sports that, um, it becomes easier to cut, you know, the mm-hmm. Olympic sports. And especially when you start seeing programs, uh, like that, that are, that are lost. So, um, for us personally, we're pretty, I'm pretty fortunate, um, you know, knock on wood, uh, here at Chico state, we've got really good leadership. Um, the president of our school is one of my former professors in the kinesiology department here at Chico state. So she's a, a former um, student athlete herself, and uh, um, and our athletic director has just been incredibly um, supportive. And um, I I just um, I'm thankful uh, to be where we are, even though you know our, our, even though we're we're not able to do much you know together like other mm-hmm. places can. I am I am really grateful to have a job and to feel like our our program is uh, you know is is in a good spot. Do you think, and this is purely your opinion, there's
1: anything that can be done aside from signing these petitions to save programs moving forward?
0: man, you know <clears throat> that's a good question um, i th- I think that all coaches can probably do a better job of maybe creating um, you know, like, I guess, uh, I think the better support system that you have um, within your program, then the harder it is to cut. Um, and I know our program would be very hard to cut because we have an incredible support system around us. Um, and, you know, part of that is, um, has been uh, sort of developing that through the years. Um, I've done weekly emails um, to all of our alumni that I have email addresses for um, all of the former athletes that I've coached, all the, their parents, like, uh, all our administrators on our campus, um, our top administrators, they're all on my email list. And so, um, so I feel like, uh, that's really helped to bring, you know, more support from different angles. Um, I've received emails back through the years directly from our, the president of our campus, um, you know, to my write-ups, you know, post-race write-ups saying, Hey man, um, just great job and, and just keep it going. And, um, but I feel like if we can, you know, sort of uh, do a good job of um, both connecting with our administrators and um, and uh, making sure that there is a solid line between us and them, um, and then also uh, make it very obvious that we are well-supported from, you know, uh, different angles. Like this year, we had the NCA championships in Sacramento, and we had 500 fans out there, you know, so many alumni and so many people. I was there. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I think, you know, that just makes a great statement that mm-hmm. we're not just like this small sport of cross country, like there's really something, you know, special there that is an important part of, uh, of our campus.
1: Let's continue along this line for a bit, because one of the things that I've always admired about your teams and your program at Chico State, all the way back to the early 2000s when I was competing, is just the team culture and tradition that you have. And it's only grown over the past 20 years. How have you built that at Chico State?
0: Man, I've been really fortunate um, because I uh, I went to school here myself um, and had an immense... I grew up locally, so I, I used to listen to Chico State basketball games on a transistor radio in my trailer at night, you know, um, 40, 45 minutes from Chico. Um, and so um, so I'm kind of living the dream, like coaching at the university that I went to um and uh and I've I've been here since 1987 um as a student athlete and then um you know as an assistant coach and now as a head coach um and so um I think I've always I think my my high school um upbringing uh we had I went to a school that had an amazing sense of of, uh, school spirit, um, is Corning high school. It's a local school, small, classic small school that had like a lot of pride, um, and, um, a lot of school spirit. Um, in fact, we beat Aaron Rogers in his last high school game at Pleasant Valley high school, Corning beat them, um, head to head. And, uh, but it's just, uh, that kind of got me started with like, um, just what school spirit looked like. Um and when I came to Chico, um, you know I just sort of uh, tried to um you know like when I was on the team, we were a pretty spirited group and uh, and then when I became um, as I transitioned to being a coach, um I really just i think one of the things that's like missing in our sport is just enthusiasm and uh and having. You know, support like people there and people that are making noise. And, uh, you know, you see basketball games, everybody's going crazy and stuff. And I, um, I just uh, have a vision of really trying to get a lot of fans out there and not just like sitting on their hands, but like really um, being a part of uh, a part of creating something special and our athletes understand that, um, and, uh, they get into it. And when they graduate, they're encouraged to come back and support us. Like when we're, when we're close to where they live. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're, so we travel really well when we're at conference championship meets in Southern California, we always have the most fans out there. Um, and, um, and they're not sitting on their hands, you know, they're, they're getting after it. So yeah, it's just, it's kind of a Chico thing, but it's also something that I kind of grew up with. And, uh, have really tried to do a good job of, um, of like, you know, I tell my athletes, like it's, you know, we have to like, it's not an event unless you have fans there and people that are making some noise. So let's, uh, let's create an event. Well, I think that's such an underappreciated
1: takeaway. And I've I've witnessed it firsthand. I was telling you before we hit record on this conversation, my first national cross-country meet in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania 2001, which is on the opposite side of the country. One of my most vivid memories is just the, the sea of Chico State fans uh-huh. running back and forth across the course going, Chico, <laughs> Chico. And I still have nightmares about it to, to this day. Um, and I've been to a number of NCAA championships since. And no no matter where it is, that is, is always there. And it seems like such a small thing, but it, it's not because it's been so consistent over the past several decades. And it's, I mean, consistent with the results you guys have put up at national championships year in and year out.
0: Yeah, it is. its is. We've had road trippers go to the NCAA championships every year since uh, we started qualifying in ninety seven. So wherever we've been, Florida, you name it, like there's a road trip and and they're filling up vans and heading out. You've been super successful at Chico State. You just
1: mentioned your history with the school as a student athlete and into coaching. Have you ever been tempted to leave or does that tradition and what you've built up kept you there as long as it has?
0: No, you know, I haven't um, really been tempted. and there are a couple of reasons. Um, one was a conversation I had, um, with that, uh, the supporter I, I spoke of earlier, Walt Schaefer that ran at Michigan years ago. And he's such a wise man. And the years ago he, he, we were sitting down for lunch or something and he said, you know, you know, there's something to be said about establishing a legacy. And, uh, And not necessarily jumping at, you know, like the next best thing or something, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side type thing. And that kind of resonated with me. Um, But then I also, I mean, I've traveled across the country and um, I've, uh, wherever we're at, I I, I usually find places to run or I used to. Um, And so I've, you know, I've run in Michigan and Florida and um, on the East Coast and everywhere in between. And, um, the more I travel, the more I realized just how, how fortunate I am to live in a town where I can ride my bicycle to work every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, um, as much as we are, um, very modestly, um, funded with scholarships here, um, we have, uh, you know, the natural landscape that I feel like, um, really helps make up for that. Um, we're in a good recruiting area. Um, and, uh, but the... The trail network, um, Bidwell Park, where we do a lot of our training is incredible. Um, You know, we're, we have the, the valley that's kind of closest to campus that allows for, you know, like level, good, good footing on dirt trails for like the flat stuff, but then the hills are only four miles away. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, we've, we've got a lot here to work with and that's kind of helped me understand that, Hey, like this is, this is pretty cool. and, it also helps a lot that we are able to run against division one teams, um, you know, throughout our regular seasons. And so, um, you know, there, that is, if we were just pinned and in, into just competing against division twos all year, um, that might be a different answer. Um, I might not be here right now, but the fact that we can run against division ones and the fact that, you know, Scott bows can go and run twenty seven forty eight like in a, in a division one and pro field, um, and being a D2 athlete, um, just keeps me, it, it, it allows me to feel like, Hey, like we have just as much of an opportunity to reach our potential here as we would anywhere else. For those reasons, has it been easier for you
1: to recruit in that regard?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In fact, um, when, I took, when I started as the head coach here, we were a non-scholarship school. And uh, so um, we didn't have athletic scholarships. And we were in the last conference in the NCAA for Division II um, that wasn't offering any athletic aid. So, um, you know, in 95, when we went to nationals for the first time in 21 years, like nobody, nobody was on scholarship. Uh, and uh, in 97, 98, there was no scholarship athletes on the team. Um, and, uh, so I learned to recruit without any of that. And, um, and so when you're recruiting people and you don't have scholarship, it's just like, I suppose, division three, you're selling the school, you're selling the, the, um, the layout of the area and, you know, the, the, the places that you can train and the culture of the team. And, uh, so that's really how I, how I began recruiting. And, so as we started to move down the scholarship uh road um it's it's uh you know that's enhanced like what we're able to do but but from the beginning I've been selling the school and the culture and and the program you know Aside from the scholarships what are some of
1: the other big changes that you've observed and experienced since you got started in this whole racket back in the mid 1990s
0: Yeah it's you know one of the things that really um that it's funny is uh, um, I, I it's let's see, when I first was starting, um, in the my, my first year as head coach was '96, and I would say between like '96 and the year 2000, 2001, I was really trying to um, hammer out like uh, what our training really needed to look like, and you know, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of research, and studying all kinds of different coaches um, that were out there. Um, and what they're doing and um, and we really got like a a solid foundation of like uh, this is what we're gonna do, and we're implementing it and as we did, and as we had some pretty good athletes here, we really started to have consistent success at the national level and um and I you know after like about ten years of that, I mean it, I felt like honestly we'd go to the national championships, and I felt like we were one of maybe five programs out there that were, that were training like we were. Um, and then in the last 10 years, I feel like, you know, um, 80% of the NCA is basically doing the same stuff now um, because there's so much shared information as the internet has really become, sure. you know, more, uh, you know, prominent and like uh, training is, is just, is so much more, it's just so much more accessible Um, you know, your athletes are in Strava and so it's so easy for coaches to see what other, other coaches and other programs are doing. Um, and so now I feel like, oh boy, um, you know, the, the bar is raised. You have all these young coaches that are, that are, that are coming in and they, you know, they have a good sense of what you need to be doing to have success. And so you really have to like work hard and fine tune the little things, um, you know, on top of the training uh, or maybe as a part of the training to uh, to continue to have the you know those top four or five performances at NCAAs. Well, since we're here and since
1: everyone's sharing this stuff anyway, what are those things that you felt like you were doing for long enough that you could consistently be competitive at the national level that now everyone else seems to have caught on to that has led to even more success for more programs?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because Um, when, when I, when I took over, uh, like we weren't even doing a weekly long run. Um, in fact, I was in the early part of COVID. I was looking back at my running logs from, um, I don't know when I was the assistant coach and I was doing a lot of running with the team. And and I was like, holy cow, like I, I never did long runs. Like, um, you know, we had on a Sunday, we'd go out and run like an eight mile run. We'd run it kind of hard, but man, that wasn't a long run. And so one of the first things we did was really kind of get a good long run in place, um, weekly and, um, and then just running consistent mileage. Like, um, for us, like I try to get across to my athletes that, um, that like there are three things that are just as equal to one another, um, with our training. One is our weekly volume per week. Like, you know, just getting the volumes in and being consistent with that. Um, The long run is uh, is one of the three things that we really, um, you know, we would really try to be consistent with Um, and then workouts. Um, And I think uh, oftentimes um, I think it's easy to for athletes, young athletes, especially to feel like the workouts um, provide, you know, 80 percent of the success that you have is because are based off of like just how good your workouts are. Um, but really, uh, you know, your workouts aren't going to be worth that much, you know, if you're not, if you don't have the glue to hold, hold the workouts together and, uh, and to really hold the racing together. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, we, we, uh, years ago, I got my hands on, um, uh, Jerry Schumacher's, uh, um, training from Wisconsin. Uh, there was a local athlete that, uh, that went to Wisconsin from Reading and one of our athletes back in the late nineties, um, was friends with him and he got a, he got a hold of, uh, of, uh, Tim Nelson's training log from the, his freshman year there. And, uh, and they were doing a pretty consistent, like, uh, uh, long, long tempo, you know, like a mm-hmm. marathon pace or maybe 20 mile pace, like 10 mile tempo. Um, and, uh, and that was something we started to integrate into, um, into, you know, our, routine, um, you know, on occasion. And, um, yeah, so there are just some different things like that, that, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, when you put them all together, um, it really added up to, um, some good stuff. Um, John McDonald, another one I really picked up on that, that I really believe in is John McDonald. Um, they had an article about, uh, the interviewing him in the track and field news many years ago. And, and he talked about how, coaches oftentimes like over taper their athletes and you know trying to find that magical like recipe for backing off just right um for you know a championship setting and he's like um yeah you know and he's like uh, when we were when we were first going he's like uh you know our athletes were running their best races at mid-season i'm like well why the heck are we spending all this time tapering like we should be maybe mm-hmm. you know kind of trained a little bit deeper into the season and uh that was something that really resonated and something that we apply with our training is sort of a late taper and not getting too far away from the things that that really get you into peak fitness.
1: Have you had to evolve or tinker with anything from a training standpoint in the last handful of years that things have gotten much more competitive at the Division two level? Or are you pretty confident in this point at what's Gotten you to this level of success that you know you just need to keep doing it consistently.
0: Yeah, I think the basics have stayed pretty much the same with the um, with the you know the running train that we're doing. I, I certainly have um, have tinkered with things. I, I'm just like you and, and, uh, you know, other coaches out there and fans of the sport. I love to read into, you know, what different pros are doing and what the Bowerman group is doing and this and that. And I've picked up some things that we've kind of added to uh, what we're doing, um, you know, with our, with our team. So we're, but I would say, you know, 90 to 95% of the running that we're doing would resemble, you know, what we were doing 15 years ago um, pretty closely. Um, you know, the real basic principles remain the same. The The smaller things that I feel like have, that we've changed a fair amount through the years is really maybe some of the ancillary stuff, which I'm really not good at. Um, and thankfully, we just got a, a, a full-time strength and conditioning coach um, on campus. And And, uh, we just had an assistant coach that was with us that was really good at that as well, Sean Smith. And so, um, so those are some things that, um, that I know are, um, you know, have made a difference, um, you know, that we've applied more recently, you know, our athletes 10 years ago, um, really had, you know, they were doing some pretty funky stuff. When I think back about it, I should apologize to them now. (laughs) Um, but, but, uh, but Sean kind of helped turn us, you know, in the right direction with that. And, uh, and now with our strength and conditioning coach, you know, he's got us pointed in a good direction and keeping it going. So. You've had a lot of success with both your men's and women's
1: programs and in cross country, the big difference is the men are racing 10k, the women are generally racing 6k on the track. More or less things are equal from a distance standpoint. Do you coach the men and women any differently, or has that evolved over the years
0: as well? Yeah, good question. Um, You know, early on, I found myself coaching the women quite a bit differently. Um, I, I think that is sort of partly because. Of the way, the things that they were doing prior to my taking over, you mm-hmm. know, drawing up the training. So when I was the assistant coach, I wasn't making the training up; our our head coach was. And so, um, but um, I remember thinking um, uh, back in my early years, like, gosh, you know, who's going to be the first woman on our team to? To we had this one run that was like a fourteen miler. You know, if you went seven miles out to the end and and back and you know, during my entire time as an assistant coach, none of the women ever went out that far. Um, and I remember thinking as I was the head coach, my early years, like, who's going to be the first one that goes out, you know, and and actually gets out to that, you know, that far of this turnaround point. Um, and so probably by about my second, maybe third year as head coach, um, we really turned the corner with the women and, um, and, and started to train for the distance that they were training for instead of training them like women. Um, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, we have 10 K women on the team and there's no reason why they shouldn't be doing, you know, um, runs, you know, that are very similar to the men, um, maybe considering taking into consideration the number of minutes that they're out there in the long run. So maybe they're not, you know, like for them, uh, uh, a 14 or 15 mile run is the same amount of time as a guy doing like 18 or something. But right. um, but yeah, so we made some changes there. And I do, uh, I do um, let's see, uh, there are some physiological differences that I recognize um, from years of coaching that I address and sometimes will split the two groups apart for some workouts to give the women a bit more like race pace stuff um, or maybe even a little bit quicker. Whereas with the guys, they don't need quite as much of that. So, um, so maybe we if you're a little bit away from like as much of the VO2 or I'm sorry, um, lactate threshold stuff with the women, and maybe we'll replace a little bit of that with a little bit more like race pace stuff, um, which is sort of addressing a little bit of the physiological differences and also um, uh, just the difference in um, in distance that they're racing as well. So, but. But overall, um, yeah, we're, we're to the point where, um, you know, our, our women, uh, as they're ready to handle it, are doing some good volumes and, um, and, uh, their training looks a lot different than it did, um, in the early years. And the performances really show like our, our top 10 list um, has been completely rewritten in the past, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years for the women. So
1: how have you grown the most as a coach over the past 25 years?
0: Oh, <sighs> um i think it, it, regardless of the success i suppose that you have if you stick with something for that amount of time and you work with you know the number of athletes that you're going to work with um during that window of time you're going to get better because um because you're you've worked with such a a large collection of people, um, of student athletes from, you know, different physiological backgrounds, um, different socioeconomical backgrounds, just, um, and, and the more that you can put in your, in your database, um, then it gives you more and more to recall from when you're working with today's student athlete. And, uh, and I feel like that is, um, something that, um, you know, sometimes I forget about that. And sometimes I'll, in my meetings with my athletes, I'll say, Hey, like, uh, um, you know, you remind me a lot of, um, this person Mm -hmm. that, you know, was in a similar spot. And, um, and these are the things that we did with, with them. And this is kind of how things went. And, um, and, uh, and, and I, I just think it, um, that it helps a lot having spent as much time, um, you know, as deep into the sport as I've been, um, and especially, you know, considering that um, I'm such a student of the sport overall, um, you know, at the same time studying our training and our, uh, our athletes and how they re- react to different things, um, you know, I keep a pretty close pulse on what's going on across the country at different levels and what different athletes are doing in different places. So it's, uh, yeah, it all accumulates and hopefully we're all getting better and better as we go along. Along
1: those lines, what do you do now to stay sharp as a coach?
0: Um, I think just continuing to challenge myself um, and my weaknesses. Um, I'm constantly working on trying to get better. I'm not, um, I don't feel like I'm as good at recruiting as I should be and I can be. And that's something I'm trying to get better at. Um, and uh, um, yeah, they're just various things. Um, you know, that, uh, that I'm constantly, um, trying to, trying to refine and, and I'm holding myself accountable to do things, um, you know, that, uh, that, that are showing, you know, kind of showing myself that like, okay, you are taking steps to like get better at this. Um, and, uh, so yeah. And then, and then of course, I think just the, um, constant um you know keeping a pulse on what's going on in the sport and what other um coaches are doing and different philosophies and things and staying fresh um podcasts man i you know this this covid um situation um you know i've been i go out and i'll ride my bike for two to three hours every day in the morning and a lot of times i'm plugged into a running related podcast and i've listened to so many testimonials and um you know so many different athletes and different things that they've gone through, and it's all stored away in my brain. And I feel like I'm just going to be that much better once we're back, um, because um, I'm already sharing some of the information with the athletes. You know that I can virtually, and and I know it's going to help me. Um, you know, get even better or be a better coach once we're once we're back to normal. Is any of that information that you're absorbing like
1: revelatory to you, or is it more reinforcing things that you've already learned and implemented, but sometimes might second guess
0: uh, I guess um, so, I don't know some you know it's such a variety of things. It might be just uh, injury prevention type stuff you know that like um, that I'll hear um, you know enough. Uh, athletes from, you know, different backgrounds that, uh, that have dealt with very similar, you know, things, um, you know, lots of testimonials of like college women, um, for instance, that, um, that, you know, were in a tough spot in college and, and now that they're a pro, um, you know, they're really opening up about those things and kind of what led them there. And some of those testimonials, um, are, you know, things that I'm kind of really, um, uh, have already started helping me with just, um, become better at addressing mm-hmm. things like in a forward way with our, uh, in a proactive way with our, our student athletes, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking with them on the phone or things like that.
1: Who have been some of your coaching mentors and influences along the way?
0: Um, yeah. So I've had like, as far as coaching, like coaches that I've had directly over me, um, um, I, my, I feel like my high school at a high school running coach, Bruce Cole, who's no longer with us. Uh, he was a guy that really helped me develop a love for the sport. Um, he took me to some, I, I grew up very poor and I had no support from the family as far as like, or very little support, um, with running. And he recognized that. Um, and he, in looking back on it, he did a great job of, um, uh, of um, kind of trying to give me some opportunities to um, embrace the sport at a different level, um, recognizing that a lot of the kids on the team didn't, didn't really like it at the same level that I did. And, um, and even though he wasn't uh, very well versed on like the physiology behind um, running, uh, he did a lot for me. And, and minus that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Um, I had a great like wrestling coach in high school that was like the ultimate motivator, um, Mr. Minto, that was uh, um, a guy that probably really kind of ignited my school spirit and like the pride in like the program that you were a part of. And um, he was a guy that made like, you know, the third string 95 pounder, um, you know, feel like they were just like the MVP of the team. Um, and that was me. I was a 97 pound freshman, you know. That was uh, just getting pummeled out there. Um, but the things that he taught me were really, um, you know, valuable to this day. Um, and my community college coaches were uh, the guys that like really encouraged me to consider um, teaching and coaching, um, you know, as a profession. Uh, they saw something that um, that that led them to think that this would be. You know something I should do and uh, encourage me to get a master's degree, which really opened the door for what I'm what I'm doing now. If you had
1: to put a number on it, how much of your job is addressing the psychological side of things with athletes versus the physiological side of things?
0: Ooh, yeah. Um, that's hard to say. I mean, they're both one thing I've really learned is that when it comes down to it, um, you know, results at the championships, especially um, the psychological side of it is, uh, is just as important as any amount of training and, and the, and all the physiological stuff that you've, you've, you know, taught them and, and all the work they put in. So to unlock that, you really have to be um, in a good place upstairs. And I've learned that along the way. Can't say that I've, Learn the exact, uh, you know, I haven't, uh, perfected, um, all the right things to say. Um, but I'm, that's another, you know, like work in progress, but yeah, they're equally important. That's for sure. And, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just another, another angle being a, being a good coach as you know, there are just so many different variables and facets. And, um, I think, I feel like, uh, Um, I am not like exceptional at any of them. I just sort of have found a way to be, um, pretty solid at most of them. And that's kind of led me to where I'm at. I feel like as a coach. And I love that
1: you're in your early fifties and you're still hungry to learn and still curious to figure things out. If you had to give your 25 year old self some coaching advice, looking back, what would that be?
0: Uh, yeah, I had a lot to learn back then. I was a little bit, um, I don't know, I was pretty naive. And, uh, um, I I think I was kind of a product of, um, I don't know, I, I just had a lot of growing up to do really back then. I don't think that, um, I I wasn't as professional as I could have been and should have been um, back then. Um, I loved running um, but at times I probably wasn't the greatest, um, role model for the athletes that I was around. That was more the, uh, my time is like when I was an assistant coach. Um, um, but, uh, but I've, I've really grown up a lot through the years and, uh, as everybody does. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think as far as like a love of running, it's always been there at a pretty high level and, um, and also as a, um, a desire to, um, to be a good coach and to be a successful coach, That's definitely you know um, something that uh, that I've that I've that I've always had, and I I really I think I got the head coaching job here. I don't know. I think I was in my mid to late twenties, probably late twenties, and it it was such a dream come true that I just um, I just couldn't let that opportunity go to waste. I knew that I had to maximize it, and that's pretty much what I've tried to do from day one let's dig into your love of running what was your introduction to the sport um it's funny i was thinking about that the other day um i i got into i, I had a friend that ran in the eighth grade he, w- he was doing some uh, age group um track meets like jun- local junior olympics stuff and he was just a friend that um his parents took me out and i you know taught me how to water ski and just someone that I hung out with and did some different stuff with. And it just happened that he was doing some running and that's kind of how I got started. And, um, and then, um, yeah, then I, I have like these memories, um, you know, once I started to identify myself as a runner, I thought of myself as a runner, even though thinking back on it, I wasn't doing a ton of running my freshman year of high school. Um, we only had a cross country team at my high school one year as my sophomore year. Um, the other years we didn't have a team. Um, but I, um, I have memories of watching the New York city marathon on a black and white TV in our little trailer that we lived in. Um, you know, the little, uh, rabbit ear antennas, um, and watching Alberto Salazar, you know, run through, um, like New York city that year where he like, they came out of the dust and he came out in the front. And I mean, I was just going crazy. And, uh, um and I uh, have memories of Joan Benoit winning the Olympics in eighty-four. Um and I I think pretty early on I saw myself as being kind of an aspiring marathon runner. Um and so um, you know, the first time that I met Alberto Salazar and I met Joan Benoit like at a Boston Marathon expo, um, you know, I was like the ultimate fanboy, you know. I've got, candy store I Oh yeah, I've got pictures with them. Um it was it was incredible. I yeah. So I, I just, uh, I grew up like, you know, the first thing I wanted to do when I graduated from college was to qualify for the Boston marathon and go run Boston. And that's pretty much what I did. Um, I ran a marathon when I was a senior in high school. Um, and uh, it, it was a four-hour marathon. <laughs> uh, I think I might have one of the largest spreads between my <laughs> my slowest marathon, 407, and my fastest was 229. So that's a I've good spread. A, it was a good spread, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's great. I can really, you know, I, I, I'm a four-hour marathoner, so I can kind of, uh, I know what that's like. And um, so I can pretty much relate with anybody out there. Did you know in high school that it was something
1: meaning being a runner that you wanted to continue doing after you graduated. Did you, I mean, you mentioned community college. I assume you ran at a a smaller school before you ended up at Chico.
0: Yeah. So I, in high school, um, I was a 503 miler and I broke 11 once in the two mile. And so I wasn't, um, you know, I I wasn't uh, being recruited by anyone. Um, and I wanted to run in college, but the reality was, uh, um we didn't really like we were re- very poor um my family's combined income when i graduated from high school was $16,000 so we were we were pretty poor we lived in a little trailer um and so i um I, I just barely you know kind of got my foot in the door to a community college that was uh <clears throat> that was an hour hour drive north of uh my hometown And my first year, I took the bus every day uh, up to school and back, and I had no plans of running um, on the team. But I was still running um, on my own. I'm not even sure what I was training for. I was just running. And one day, um, I finished a run. I was heading to the locker room at the community college, and the cross-country coach um, kind of pulled me. He said, Hey, wait, um, what's your name? And uh, and, uh, he he said, well, why aren't you on the team? And I said, well, um, I'm not very good. (laughs) And, and he said, well, well, uh, you know, you got, you need to come out. And so thank God, um, you know, for Gary Lewis is his name. Um, but he, that moment changed my life because, uh, I would not have run in college and certainly wouldn't have been become a college coach. Um, if it weren't for that day where he kind of pulled me in and, um, got me, got me going. And, um, yeah. and so I spent uh, two and a half years at a community college up in Reading um, not running exceptionally fast. I was like a mid17 5k guy up there and um, but I my love for the sport grew and every summer I'd run a marathon like the San Francisco Marathon um, and uh, yeah and I just got just good enough to like make the Chico State team um, because we weren't very good back then. Um, and uh, that was just a dream come true to be able to you know, run here. So kind of went from like no intention of college running, like didn't, you know, I wasn't really, um, in my mind, good enough to do it to, um, to running in college. And uh, yeah, just kind of my love for the sport grew and grew as, uh, as I went along.
1: In those early days, what was it that you loved about it? Was it the competitive aspect of it? Was it the opportunity to push yourself? Was it the camaraderie of being around other runners? I'd love to understand that a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I think all of the above. I I loved competing. I loved testing myself. I loved I I you know grew you know that like uh, affection for you know the that feeling of of, of being like finished a workout and just having that feeling of like, wow, I just did something, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And it just, it was for me, um, you know, being assigned that college uniform, uh, the first time I, I doubt that there was anybody on our team that, that appreciated that moment, um, more than I did. Like, I mean, I probably cried. Like it was it, was, it meant so much to me because I never viewed myself as being good enough to, to run in college. And, uh, and even when I was at Shasta College, I really just wasn't sure that I would be able to make a team at the four-year level. And I'll never forget you know, my first uniform at Chico State and having that opportunity. And it just, uh, it just really, you know, um, I was just 100% in and, uh, and it was a dream come true. And uh yeah,
1: is that the experience that you want your own athletes at Chico State now to have to some degree?
0: Yes, I mean ideally, that's really what you want um of course, you know we're dealing with a lot of you know different athletes as far as you know they're coming from mm-hmm. a much different background um in most cases, um, but there are some Tim Tolson being one that you know tim was uh, Tim Tolson was a, a young man that came in with very modest, um, running, you know, PRs at a high school. And, and, um, I know that he was just very, very grateful for the opportunity, you know, to prove himself here and to, to run in college. And, um, and we've had others like him and they, they took complete, you know, advantage of that maximized, you know, their, their time. Um, but you always have some that I think take it for granted, you know, because they're talented and, um, it's just what they were good at and um, they don't, they don't really, you know, get it or maybe they don't develop that, that real passion that we were fortunate to, you know, to, to have and carry. You mentioned Tim, who I'm fortunate enough to coach now.
1: He's one of a number of your athletes who have had some great success post-collegiately. How do you feel when you see them either winning races or qualifying for the Olympic trials or making U.S. teams or just generally being successful in their life, whatever it happens to be for them?
0: Man, I I feel like a proud parent, honestly. It's, it's so rewarding seeing the things that that Tim has done and so many others. Um, it's, I, I, um, I, I mean, you know, you can't help but think back about their first years with us and, um, and just the journey. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, I always have discussions with them about the potential for running beyond uh, Chico State. Um, and I try to be, you know, I try to give them Optimism that there's more out there, and um, and hope that they'll you know continue to enjoy the sport at least at some level. Um, and uh, but man, there have been a number of them that have done things beyond their time here that just leave me scratching my head. And I feel like I have a pretty open mind as to you know what people can mm-hmm. do. Um, but the you know Tim, you know podiuming at on the podium at UTMB and. Doing the things that he's done, and um, Anthony Costolos, you know, running two thirteen mm-hmm. twice in the marathon, um, and Aliyah Gray broke thirty two minutes in the ten k on the track, you know, after her time with us. And there, I think in the past several Olympic trials, we've had at least like seven athletes or alumni that have qualified. Um, and uh, yeah, in fact, I've I went to Houston to watch the trials when Tim and Lindsay both ran, and a couple others. Uh, and I went down to LA and sweated it out on the, the, the side of the course. Oh, it was brutal, yeah. Yeah, down there. I felt really bad not making it this year to Atlanta because we did have a good a good uh turnout of uh alumni that were running there as well. But yeah, I have, I have incredible pride. Um I am not a I'm not a parent um uh, myself, but I feel like these are my kids, you know, off and um, out in the real world um, and chasing their dreams and and doing some things that are just uh, really, really special. And uh, I'm very proud.
1: Along those lines, what does success mean for you as a coach when you start working with an athlete as a freshman coming into Chico?
0: I think success is very... Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's just really dependent on the athlete that you have in front of you. And um, so there's no clear definition of success, really, in my eyes. It's success is sort of maximizing that person's potential, um, you know, during their time here, um, given the circumstances that maybe they've had to deal with while they're here. Um, for some, maybe they've been, you know, they're very injury-prone, Um, and maybe they haven't been able to, um, do the things that you felt like they could do, um, had they been healthy all the way through, but, you know, but then they, you know, they, they just pull some things out at the end and, and, um, and run some races or times that just, uh, um, that even though they may be below what you may have expected or whatever early on, it's still just as rewarding. So um it just I think it's really uh just depending on the person and and uh all that you know that they've had going on. Um and I feel like I have individual meetings with my athletes at the beginning of each season and at the end of each season, um, face to face, at least 30 minutes. And um and so we're constantly talking about goals and we're constantly um, focusing on, you know, what the things that we're doing while things are working and things that we need to do better. Um, and we're always trying to put our heads together, um, to maximize their experience and, um, and their gift. And, uh, so I feel like those things, um, hopefully go a long way in helping them to whatever success is for that person, you know, when they're here. How do you help them
1: translate that success on the track and on the cross country course into other areas of their life?
0: Yeah, um, I think that's kind of a natural progression or, you know, it's what we do um, (laughs) and on a daily basis to have success in our sport sets you up so well for what you're going to be doing in the real world, Um, you know. Sometimes a lot of athletes will complain about morning practices, and I'm like, "Hey, um, you do realize that once you're done here, you're going to be getting up much earlier than this, and you're not going to enjoy it as much." And uh, um, and I don't know how many times I've been, I've had you know alumni thank me for like, "Oh man, you know, um, I, I appreciate you know the uh, everything that we did because it really set me up like um, for what I'm doing now." But just the the pursuit of success in our sport um, is uh, does so much for success in the real world. I feel like um, if you can, you know, train as hard as we do um, uh, for a ten k, say, and then go out there and just squeeze every bit of yourself out of yourself for twenty five laps. Um, and and mentally stay engaged that whole way and talk yourself through all the tough points of the race. Um, I mean, y- you can do anything. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I have like yard projects that I, that are just daunting sometimes. And I'm like, oh, I've got this, you know? <laughs> and it's all because of my running background. Um, and uh, so I feel like, you know, just the what we do as runners um, goes a long way. And certainly I, I try to, um, do my best to encourage them to be thinking beyond their time in chico while they're here um, and hopefully setting themselves up um, you know outside of running for a good um, you know professional career and whatever their um, whatever their avenue is and so encouraging them to get involved in uh, internships and things like that but but yeah
1: back to your own journey you started coaching at Chico State in your mid 20s and have been there ever since. At what point in college or whenever it might have been, did you realize that coaching is an avenue you wanted to pursue?
0: Yeah, that I think was when I was at Shasta College. Um, You know, I, when I got to college, I had such a, um, I just didn't have a lot of confidence academically um, because I grew up in a poor poor household and and uh, and I had nobody in my family that had gone off to college. And uh, so I was sort of just trying to find my way. And um, I, I remember I took chemistry. I was going to be a, a forest ranger. So I was taking classes towards forestry and I took my first chemistry class. And I, man, I just, I, I got... Uh, it did not click with me at all, and it scared me like no other and When I found out that i'd have to take like a, a lot more chemistry, <laughs> I was like okay uh, maybe i'll maybe i'll look into something else <laughs> and uh so um at the same time, I was uh um, really starting to enjoy the experience of being a college runner, and I thought I could see myself being a a, a good teacher and coach um and i at first uh, when I was at Shasta college i was Kind of viewing things as probably coaching and teaching at the high school level, um, and uh, which I think I, I would have done great at. Like, I, I really enjoy lots of different sports and activities, and I could teach a tennis class if I had to right now, or any number of different things. Um, but uh, but yeah, that became kind of the direction, um, general direction. And then, um, and then once uh, once I realized like I could get a master's degree, then that um, I started thinking more of like the potential of college coaching. So do you view coaching as a form of teaching? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. You're, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, um, education that goes on. I really, you know, one of the things I try to do with the athletes is, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an exercise physiologist by any means. Um, but I really want to, um, I want our athletes to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And I want them to understand some of the physiological principles behind it all. Um, so that I feel like they get a little bit more out of it. um, if they're understanding like the reasons for doing the weekly long run or the reasons for, you know, doing a lactate threshold workout. Um, and, um, so, um, so I really want them to be an active participant in the process, um, in when I was taking like teacher preparatory classes, I remember the term guided discovery and it, the teacher sort of like, um, you know, gets the gives the student information and presents some stuff, but then they also want the, the student to sort of, sort of research things on their own to become better at like whatever that pursuit is. And that's something that, um, that I've tried to, um, to, to, um, you know, teach our athletes, and I. I part of that stems back to um, training myself for you know my. Um, you know, once once I finished uh, college running, um, you know, I coached myself um, for many years, and uh, and so I learned a lot from that, and I. Um, and setting up you know, my own training plans for myself really changed things around to where I started looking forward to workouts instead of dreading them like I did in college. And a lot of that was like I was doing workouts for the right reason. I was doing them because I knew I needed to do them and I knew why I was doing them. Um, and so I kind of want our athletes to be in that place where they're really understanding um, you know, the basics of why we're doing the things that we're doing and then um, hopefully you know, it's, uh, it's easier for them to grasp and hopefully they're taking more out of the, uh, the, the process. Yeah. I think that's a great takeaway in your early days as a coach.
1: Did you find it challenging to balance your own competitive pursuits with coaching the teams?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think I, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back, I feel like I did a pretty good job of, um, of, Separating the two, I never did workout. I wasn't the coach to do workouts with the with the team. So there were plenty of workouts done on really tired legs. Um, you know, I'd see them through a, a you know a session, and then I would just stay at like a hill or whatever, and then I'd do my workout after. Um, but uh, um, yeah, it was it was a challenge. Uh, but um, but I was pretty careful not to allow it to uh, interfere with what. Um, you know, with what they were were doing, and, and our goals, you know, with the team, I really didn't want to be that coach that was, uh, um, you know, more concerned with what I was doing than the athletes. Um, yeah.
1: How much longer do you see yourself coaching and working with athletes? Is this a lifelong pursuit for you, or do you think at some point there will be an end to it?
0: No, there'll there'll be an end. Um, in fact, I'm I'm uh like I I really really love obviously what I do. Um, and, uh, but my plan is to, um, <laughs> my plan, it's kind of funny, but my plan is to coach, um, between, <clears throat> um, United States Olympic, um, uh, um, hosting, um, uh, stints. So, um, I got the job, uh, I went to the Atlanta Olympics in 96. Okay. Um, and then, uh, my friend and I got tickets, you know, well in advance and we drove across the country and just winged it and we went to almost all the track and all kinds of different competitions. And so it just turns out that, um, I'll be turning 60, um, when the Olympics will be in LA and, uh, and that's kind of around when I had wanted to retire, and so um, I think I'm going to retire, you know, that track season, um, and then go and down to LA and enjoy the Olympic Games. So that's kind of the that's kind of the goal. And then after that, um, you know, I don't know if I'll. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll do a little bit of stuff on the side. But um, but I'm I'm good with that. Just go smashing 60 plus bike <laughs> records. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I'm uh, I I really like doing a lot of different sports. So there's a side of me that's like can 't wait to be able to play some tennis again and golf and do different things um, i'll definitely be on the bike um, but uh, yeah i'm I just I'm like a big kid um, I love to play I always have and so I there's a part of me that definitely looks forward to having the time of the day just to go and like and play and um, and uh, stay fit and and also travel I have such an extended family now of alumni that live everywhere and so my wife and I are looking forward to getting a sprinter van and just traveling around the U.S. and visiting uh, all of our kids. <laughs> there you go. Sounds good.
1: sounds like a good plan to me. A <laughs> couple more things before we wrap up here and to bring this back to coaching and the, the practice of it. There are a lot of high school and college coaches who listen to this podcast. And we've talked a bit about team culture and just how you've built that tradition at Chico, one thing I want to get into with you, because it would be cross-country season right now, and cross-country is my favorite thing. And I always loved the team aspect of it in such an individual sport. And in cross-country, you've got essentially, you've got five men or women who score. You've got two you know, who can, who can displace. But you've got seven people who more or less line up for the important races at the end of the year. But that's maybe only like a third of your team. And I mean, how do you get everyone to go all in and be a part of something, even if they just know, like, they will never be in the top seven?
0: Oh man, I love that question um, because I know from years of doing this that that is just. Um, uh, I we have had some incredible stories. Um, of and, and we, so part of the reason why we have a pretty large roster, um, and part of the re, re, part of the way that I've been able to justify that to my athletic director who thinks, you know, who used to think that I was absolutely nuts to have, you know, a 30 person roster for a team that scores five athletes. Um, but, um, you know, gosh, we have had, uh, I remember one year we had a guy that, um, that was the 10th guy that came in that year um, in one recruiting class. He ran like 9.31 or 9.32, just the end of his senior year. And I told him like, hey, if you run 9.30, that you know that, that, would, that should do the trick. And so he emails me after his section meet. I'm just like, oh gosh, like, <laughs> can we really 10 guys in one year? I mean, if you take in 10 guys a year, five years, I mean, that's 50 guys and that's not um, sustainable. Um, but that person went on to, um, become the NCAA runner up in the, in the steeplechase uh, our school record. He won our conference in cross country. He won the, the steeple 5k double his senior year. Um, and we had a similar situation just a couple years ago with a guy or two years ago, um, Jack Johnson, who didn't make our roster, um, out of high school. And he, um, ended up running 1406 or 1407 in the 5k for us um and uh you know it was all american and track and um and there are plenty of others um there are very similar stories um and so it's uh and all of that is like a byproduct i feel like of treating everybody as equal as you can from day 1 and also really kind of ingraining to them like hey you might be you know here this year but but hey, we had a guy, you know, Pat Boyvin, his freshman year, um, we redshirted him and he was probably our 20th best guy on our team that year. And the next year at the NCAA Championships as a redshirt freshman, he took 20th overall. And so you have to stick with it. You have to see the big picture. You have to be patient. Um, and those are all things that I really, really preach. And, uh, and thankfully, I have a lot of tangible evidence of of people that um, you know that really literally started at the bottom and uh, and worked their way up to being you know just incredible
1: runners for us, I love that perspective. It reminds me of a conversation I had for this podcast with coach Frank Gagliano, and he was coaching I believe it was the farm team at the time or maybe it was Oregon track club elite i can 't remember, but he had x amount of roster spots mm-hmm. that Nike would fund for him, but he had like 30 guys at practice, and I think he said it was like Vin Lanana came by one day, yeah, and he said, he's like, Gags, what, you know, you can't have all these people here, like, we, we just don't have the funding for him. He's like, ah, quiet, it's the developmental squad. <laughs> And I always I always love that. And that's how I've always thought about cross country teams is you can only have, you know, seven people on paper score, but everyone else contributes. And what I loved about my time at Stonehill, and you guys certainly embodied this at Chico, is seven of us would go to nationals or at least did my senior year, but the rest of the squad came too and they felt like they were a part of it. And yeah. that's just one of my favorite memories from collegiate athletics. And it's Honestly, was one of the hardest things to leave behind after graduating.
0: Oh yeah, I. That's another thing. Is man, you sometimes it's easy to lose track of the value of every individual on your team. And uh, if I, you know, I have made some cuts through the years, um, and uh, uh, because if I felt like a person wasn't running well, and they were a negative um, person out there, they weren't being a positive contributor then sometimes I've cut, cut ties with them um, and they had to earn their way back onto the team. Um, but but you know sometimes I'll have guys that and women that never, you know, sort of make that uh, leap to becoming like a conference uh, player or a national player for you. But man, some of the conversations that they have, like in supporting their teammates and organizing the Nationals road trips and, and just the things that, you know, you, um, it's hard to define. Um, but they just go so far in like helping that culture along and helping your team along that, you know, they literally are like just as valuable as your top runner because of the things that they put into your program. Yeah, even if they're not scoring, they're just contributing in different ways. Definitely, yeah, and that's that's something that that we uh, that we talk about at camp every year. Um, just being a being a, a strong link in the chain. Last question for you, and I know this is a challenge that a lot of high school
1: and college, and even post collegiate coaches can deal with. But how do you? individualize things for an athlete when you're in a group setting, given that everyone has different training backgrounds, experiences, and those sort of things?
0: Yeah. Well, right from the start, I, I have interviews with each athlete to find out what their training background is like in high school. And so I have a good sense of, of their mileage background, long runs, um, and kind of what workouts look like for them in high school. And so I really try to individualize things for them, uh, for each person, to hopefully maximize, um, you know, their their um, their experience. Um, and uh, heck, we had we had two women this past year. They were two freshmen, came in the same year, ran at the same state meeting cross country, finished just seconds apart from one another. Um, and when I talked to one of them on the phone um, about her training background in high school, she had run sixties per week, pretty regularly. Um, and, uh, you know, weekly long run in the 13 to 14 mile range, um, had a very solid background of running, you know, she's running as much as a lot of our top, you know, returning women. Um, and, um, so her roommate who, um, in the dorms, uh, who came for a different program, but was basically equal on paper. Um, you know, I talked to her about her high school background. Like she had never run over six miles at a time in high school. Um, and so it was so important that I didn't, you know, that I didn't treat their training the same. Like I really needed to, um, to tailor their training for each individual, um, while keeping in mind, you know, kind of the general principles of what we're trying to do. Um, and so, um, so I went to work and put together a summer plan and, and then, you know, once we met, like for the, the fall, we put together the plan for the fall and their training looked a lot different on paper, obviously. Um but it was great. It was such a cool experiment. I mean, I've, I've done this many times, but like, um, they took first and third overall in our conference championship in cross country last year. Um, and you know, they were doing quite a bit different, um, you know, programs as far as, you know, they weren't running nearly the same miles per week, but, um, but I felt really proud of, um, of, you know, in the, our individualized process. Um, I felt like worked really well and, uh, And yeah, that's been, you know, repeated a lot from in the past. All right. I'm going to squeeze in one follow-up question to that. How important is it as a coach
1: to be adaptable and not feel tied to this very rigid program?
0: Yeah, no, that's so important. Um, uh, Man, I think it's just you, you learn. One of the things that I do through my athlete's time here is I learn um, what each person's, how they tick and how they operate. And um, and so I do a lot of observing. I don't do a lot of like, you know, like um, saying, hey, you need to run faster in this workout or mm-hmm. why didn't you run these intervals faster? Um, I like to observe and I see kind of how their training is going. I pay attention to their training paces and then I see how that translates to racing. And as you do that, you kind of figure out um, and as you, as you tweak and tinker with things, um, you just figure out like some differences and you figure out some things that really work naturally for each athlete. And once you've figured some of those things out, then you really just want to maximize um, things. And uh, um, and so like for me, um, Scott Bowes is a great example. He's the best runner we've ever had here. Um, and, uh, and in the process of learning how he operated and really kind of like, um, you know, just sort of, uh, I, we do a lot of, not necessarily like, um, pace, uh, goal type workouts, but more intensity types. I'll give them an intensity that we're shooting for. And then it's up to them to kind of dial in and what that actually, you know, looks like, um, in actual pace. Um, and, uh, with Scott, we just figured out through time here that, if we if we ran like the target paces for his level of fitness, like his PRs at the time, um, if we did that very often, like he wouldn't race well. But um, so I kind of we got in the habit of really kind of uh, um, you know one workout a week would look like you know a sub twenty eight minute ten k guy, and the other workout would look just like you know the other thirty minute guys that we have on the team. And on race day, he would race and he would run (laughs) really fast. And, uh, but it just worked really well that way. And that's something that, um, that we've done with, you know, I've done with a lot of the athletes is just sort of, uh, um, is really kind of go roll with things and try not to get in the way and add, you know, advice and things here and there. Um, But, uh, but oftentimes, you know, if you can do a good job of reading the differences between athletes, um, you're going to get more out of them. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Gary, I've
1: really enjoyed this past almost hour and a half. I have an immense amount of respect for you and your program, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks a lot for having me, Mario.
1: All right. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to support the show, Please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. Also, make sure that you tag the AM Shakeout in your post. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been sampling a number of different New Balance shoes this year and highlighting them here. But if I were going away for a couple months and could only take two pair with me, here's what I'd throw in my bag. The Fresh Foam 1080 V10, which is what I'd wear for about 70 to 80% of my miles, and the Fresh Foam Beacon V3 for faster workouts and up-tempo long runs. You can check them both out today at newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's the audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last two things before we wrap up. If you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you want to support The Morning Shakeout directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com/support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout podcast. <laughs>